But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So that in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come before you with many, many great needs. But we have no greater need than to hear from you right now. So Father, I pray that you would speak. We pray as a church that you would speak through your word to our hearts. And that you, by the, by the grace of God in Christ, would transform homes, transform the church, transform the workplace. That you would move in our lives so much that we might display the beautiful, lovely doctrine of God, our Savior. I pray for your help. I, I cannot, by oratory skill or by cleverness, Sway your people to hope in you. For that, we need the Spirit of God. And so, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move with freedom in this place, swaying us to trust and hope in Jesus Christ. That we would leave here with our confidence firmly fixed, firmly established in the cross and the work of Christ there. And the empty tomb... Lord, we pray for the world. We know that we, we wake up this morning to more than one conflict, another one now in the Middle East with Israel. Lord, we pray for Israel. We pray for this war. We pray that there would be peace. We pray for Ukraine and for Russia that there would be peace. And we look forward to the day when the Prince of Peace will return. And reign... And then there will be peace. But today, Lord, we pray for Israel. We pray for peace in that land. And we pray for Ukraine that the war might end. Pray all of these things in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Sunsets are lovely things, are they not? Don't you love a good sunset? To watch a beautiful sunset. I love the beauty of a sunset. A good sunset, you know what I mean? Not just a... Not just one like on a super clear day where the sun just goes down. I, I like those. They're okay. But I love them when there's clouds in the sky kind of, you know, broken up. And the evening, the sun just ignites the evening sky like fire with color and vibrance. There's nothing better 
or more beautiful than a sunset like that. I just love a good sunset. And to think God does that all the time. You watch a good sunset and you think, the God, the, the greatest artist ever, does that all over the world all the time. It's lovely and it's amazing. I've had the joy of watching lovely sunsets in some of the most beautiful places on this planet. I have seen the sun setting over calm oceans like the, like the Gulf of Mexico or the Pacific Ocean. I have watched the sun go down in early afternoon over high mountains like the Rockies in Colorado or the Swiss Alps. Out in western Nebraska, people call beautiful sunsets sandhill sunsets, and they are breathtaking to behold. The sky comes alive with oranges and reds, and the sun sets among the buttes and the rugged hills out there. It's lovely. I've watched a few lovely sunsets here, too, as the sun sets over corn. (laughs) (laughs) Sunsets are lovely, and that's probably why people like to paint them so much. They want to capture the beauty of a sunset and display it. That's probably why some of Monet's most beloved paintings are sunsets. It's, it's helpful to consider what's going on when a painter paints a sunset. He is, he is not making a sunset lovely. When Monet sets, you know, paint the canvas, he's not making a sunset lovely. The sunset is already lovely. The painter is merely trying to display with the skill the loveliness of that sunset. When I look at a Monet sunset of a sailboat floating on a calm sea in a cove, with lovely broken up clouds and a reddish yellow setting sun casting perfect light on all of it. I know that Monet had witnessed himself something spectacular. His eyes have taken in something lovely and so he took to paint and canvas and he set out to recreate it. He didn't make the sunset lovely, it was already that. He simply displayed the loveliness for all to see. And I think that's what Paul is instructing us to do in Titus 1, Titus 2, 1 through 10. Display, he's calling us to display the loveliness of the doctrine of God our Savior for all to see. The doctrine or the teaching is itself lovely. The, the doctrine of God our Savior, that those truths are the most wonderful, glorious, beautiful truths in the universe. For they speak of God's love for sinners and God's passion to show himself strong and glorious on behalf of all who believe. God's loving plan to call out from among the nations a people for his own possession. Or to use the words of Titus in chapter 1, the lovely truth that our never-lying God has promised us eternal life before the ages began. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? The doctrine that God so transforms a life through the power of the gospel. Think of Paul, this one who formerly blasphemed and persecuted the church. And then in Christ, he was transformed to one who deeply loves the brethren, loved the brethren And his willing was willing even to lay down his own life for the beautiful doctrine to be seen and cherished. The lovely doctrine that God is changing me. He's changed me and he's changing me. And friends, if you're in Christ, he's changing you. From people who primarily love ourselves and our own pleasure and our own wants to a people who cherish God supremely 
and love others deeply. That, friends, I think is lovely to behold. I think it is a glorious vista. The doctrine of God, our Savior, is lovely, and we are called in this passage to display that love with the canvas of our lives, that beauty for all to behold. We're called to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every place, in the home, in the church, in the community of faith, and in the workplace, and in every stage and station of life. Like Monet, who set out to display the beauty of a sunset, we are called to display the beauty of God at work in us, old and young, men and women, even bond servants. That's what Titus 2, 1 through 10 teaches us, and what we're pressing into for this third week. Today we're focusing more on verses 4 through 10. Last week we hovered over verses 2 through 4, and specifically how older men and older women adorn the gospel Today, we're thinking about the youngers. And to walk through this, we'll just consider three different spheres that Paul's pointing to in this passage. I've mentioned them a couple of time, times. The home, the community, church, and the workplace. And the specific instructions Paul gives Christians in each. So, in our study of Titus, we have more than once noticed Paul's interest in the gospel transforming the home the homes of Christians. If you recall from chapter 1, when Paul gives the qualifications for would-be elders, he first points to their home life, doesn't he? That's where he first goes. The elder must be a husband of one wife. He must love his family. He must love his wife. He must, he must be loyal to and love his singular wife, and the elder's children must be faithful. He must raise his children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And here in our passage, we see that emphasis again. Paul believed that the gospel transforms the home, the home lives of those whom God has transformed by his grace. It's little wonder, friends, that the home is under such fierce and sustained attack in our society and in our culture. The enemy hates the home. The enemy hates the home. But God, through the gospel, transforms homes. So look with me at verse 4. They, older women, are to teach what is good, and so to train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. This is the way, at least in part, that the beauty of the gospel is displayed by godly young women. They learn especially from older women, how to love their husbands and their children and to live self, in a self-controlled way and to work at home and to be kind and to be submissive to their own husbands. Now, I know some reject passages like this, a lot of people reject passages like this, by saying something like, that's just rooted in some ancient view of family, ancient family values culture. I think a lot of people imagine the ancient world was like 1950s, leave it to beaver, America. You know what I mean? When it comes to family values. But was it that? I think it's a misread of history. I don't think it was that. I, 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 you know, just from the text, why would Paul feel the need to teach on this so pervasively if that was the culture of the day? He wouldn't have a need to do that if people in Crete in the first century were embracing these truths. It wasn't the culture 
Many of the young women who would read this or hear this originally would have been in arranged marriages. And, their value, and the value of loving and submitting to their husbands would not have been one that was highly prized. Along with that, often when the gospel begins to take hold in a new place, among a new people, it often begins with women. That's been my experience. I've seen that in missions, and many others have observed that as well. For whatever reason, women often respond to the gospel first and more quickly. And if that was the case on Crete, then likely many of the women in the churches on Crete were likely living with unbelieving husbands, men who did not love Jesus. So just imagine, okay? Just imagine, just thinking about the original culture. Imagine being Christians, women, imagine this, being Christians in arranged marriages with unbelieving husbands who are steeped in the godless and infamous Cretan culture. Remember what we saw from chapter 1 about the Cretan culture. Cretans are always liars, lazy gluttons, evil beasts. Titus was to preach what accords with sound doctrine to women who were married to men like that. And their call as ones who have now been transformed by the grace of God in Christ was, is to love their husbands and love their children and to be kind and to be submissive and to be self-controlled. It was a pertinent and needed message in that context as it is in ours. Many today would read verses 4 through 5 as terribly old-fashioned at best and oppressive or patriarchal at worst. Working at home? Now, of course, we, we shouldn't read this as a ban on Christian women to have jobs outside of the home. That isn't the point of the passage. Although I think families would do well to consider this passage and passages like this as they make those crucial decisions on how to do home. The point is that a woman is called to love her family, work in that role to establish a home and establish a nurturing environment for the family, for the children. It's a God-given responsibility, and those who see it as that will set out to display in their lives and in their homes the beauty of it. We should keep in mind, again, that society despises family. The moral revolution going on around us teaches us anything. It should teach us that they don't love the family. The world we live in does not value family. And many in the church, many in the church in America, instead of seeking to display the doctrine of God and all of its beauty, like the way Monet tried to capture a sunset, they instead attempt to improve upon it. As if the doctrine itself was not that pretty and it needed something else, some spice to it to make it more beautiful. And so they change it. Yet the changes that we're seeing today as a result of those kind of things look a lot more like a monochrome world than the living color and the beauty of the gospel. What they end up with is not more beautiful than the doctrine of God our Savior. They end up with something decidedly ugly and that does not work. So I think young women should take from this is that you should not let the world's values sway the, sway the way that you view your role in your home and your role in your marriage. You need the word of God to do that. We need the word of God and embrace as significant and beautiful what the Bible has to say about the role of a young woman in the home. 
It was pertinent in Crete almost 2,000 years ago when this was written, and I believe it is pertinent in our context in Sioux Falls in 2023. Maybe you're hearing this and your thought is, but pastor, you don't know my husband. He's a turkey. How could I love him? How can I be submissive to him? Or, and I know that you wouldn't articulate this, but maybe you might be feeling this. You, you might resent your children for the way that their existence prevents you from achieving your goals in life. I can do more than just sit at home, just sit at home, even display it in the way that we phrase the thought, right? Just sit at home as if it's insignificant. I can do more than just sit at home with them while they eat and cry and Mess their diapers. A friend, I want to encourage you to embrace your calling in marriage and your calling in the home. It is God-given, it is glorious, and it is beautiful, and the world doesn't see it that way, but that doesn't matter, because what does the world know about beauty? True beauty. The only way you will see this as truly beautiful and embrace it and set out to display it that way is through the work of the gospel in you. I believe the gospel opens our eyes to what is truly beautiful. That's why Paul ends verse 5 with, so that the word of God may not be reviled. I mean, that must mean that the word of God alive in you enables and produces self-control and purity and genuine love for your husband and children and kindness, not harshness. If the word of God is operative, it's God's work in you, opening your eyes to what is truly beautiful. If the word of God is not operative in your life like that, then, owing to your behavior and your posture, the word of God will certainly be reviled. Others will see your rebellion and hear your profession and just note that those two things don't line up. And they will think that the word of God is working in you to produce ugly things and not beautiful things. But the word of God, alive in the saint, always produces good fruit. The gospel transforms the home. And young men, look at verse 6. Young men are to be self-controlled. Not controlled by their passions or their anger or their lusts or their addictions or by laziness or by the world. They are to be self-controlled. It's revealing to me that this particular instruction is oft repeated in this passage, being self-controlled. There must have been an issue in the church, or maybe there's an issue in our hearts. A lack of self-control. I think it is common today. I talk to young men all the time who struggle with self-control. They struggle to control their appetites. And it affects the way they spend their time, the way they use their phones, the way they use screens, even the way they eat. It is the gospel at work in the life of a young man that changes that. God at work in us changes us from being men who feel like slaves to what they want. To being slaves to righteousness, free from those things, free to follow Christ. Through Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can renounce worldly passions and live self-controlled lives. And it is beautiful, friends, when we do. The gospel, the work of Christ on the cross when he died for you and for me, and when he rose again from the dead, defeating sin and death, finishing it. I love that song that we sing today. It was finished on that cross. His work 
And doing that defeats sin and death. And his work continues to make dead people live and transforms us into his likeness. The the gospel utterly transforms a home. It makes it beautiful. The gospel makes the home beautiful. Displaying the grace of God in Christ. So, is the beautiful and glorious doctrine of God our Savior on display in your home? Is that convicting to you? It is to me. Is it transforming your home? Does your home display the goodness of God in Christ? Not just in the things that you hang on your walls, but in your lives. The way that you live, the way that you love. The gospel transforms a home. And it transforms a community of believers. It transforms a church. And you can see Paul's desire for that to happen in the way that he instructs both older women and then young Titus himself. Older women are to train younger women, as we read a moment ago in verse 4. And then according to verse 7, Paul instructs Titus specifically as a young man on Crete who is called also to be a teacher in the church. Look at that verse with me. Show yourself, Titus, in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. I mean, do you see in this passage Paul's desire for discipleship in the church? He made, he, he's made this explicit to older women and then to Titus. And then I think he's made it implicit to every other demographic like older men, older men to teach younger men. Titus was to be a model of good works. You model something so that others might follow your model. That's what modeling is, right? You model something so that uh, I used to teach archery to young children. And you can't just explain archery to young children. You can't just explain to them how to pick up a bow and how to hold it and how to draw it and how to knock an arrow and how to release it and follow through. You can't just, tr- you can't just tell them. You got you to gotta pick up the bow and show them how it's done, how to stand and how to, all of those things. You have to model it. Modeling is for teaching. It is discipleship. All through this passage, I see the gospel at work in the life of the church, creating discipleship relationships. Titus is to be a model of good works. Older women are to train younger women. Now look what he says specifically to Titus. He is to teach with integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. And that, according to Paul, will pull the rug out from his opponents who wish to thwart the work of God and the church and the ministry of Titus. Paul isn't suggesting with that that no one will say any evil against Titus, that people will stop making accusations against him, but rather they will have no true evil things to say about Titus, no true accusations about his motive or the content of his teaching, and thus they themselves will be shamed, not Titus. People may still make accusations. Anyone who preaches the gospel knows that's true. People make accusations. But those accusations won't stand because there's nothing to them. That's the point here. So in those two ways, the beauty of the doctrine of God our Savior is displayed in the church, the teaching and the discipleship. And may we show those things beautifully here. Now the third place, the beauty of the gospel is to be displayed, according to this passage, is in verses 9 through 10. 
So bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So just before I say much about this, note with me that Paul is not endorsing any kind of slavery. But the reality is slavery was a socioeconomic thing in that day. Although it was a different kind of slavery than the race-based chattel slavery that's in our American past. But it was a very real thing, and many had the low status of bondservant. So Paul gives Christian bondservants, these bondservants who had responded to the gospel, instructions so that they might display the beauty of Christ in their work. It's not an endorsement of slavery, but Christian slaves needed to know how to be Christian slaves. They needed to know how to show Christ in the workplace. And by implication, the instructions here should inform our own socioeconomic situations, especially as employees with bosses over us, some with kind bosses, some with horrible bosses. So how do we display the glory and the beauty of the doctrine of God our Savior at work? I think many Christians view their their Christian life kind of like a chest of drawers. Don't worry, I'm not going to talk about Magic sock drawers this morning. But many, many Christians view their, their, their Christian life, their, their whole life as a, a chest of drawers. Our lives are a chest of drawers. And we have a drawer for our work, right? And then a drawer for our home. And a, a drawer that we have for church, our spiritual drawer. When the, but we pull one out on Sunday, spiritual drawer, and it's open. But then on Monday, we close that drawer and we pull out our work drawer. Things are different. And that's not to suggest that we are good on Sundays and scoundrels on Mondays. But still, we we don't see those drawers as connected. I don't need to have the church drawer opened at work, you know, always talking about and thinking about God and such, talking about the gospel. Maybe I will open it on my lunch break, you know, close my work drawer and open my Christian drawer on my work break, but I don't need to always have it open What Paul is suggesting here, though, is that that's a false way of seeing our lives. The gospel does not merely transform one drawer out of a a chest of drawers. (laughs) He transforms the whole chest. We're completely different. My life looks completely different. And every aspect of my life, everywhere I find myself, must be different by the work of the gospel. The way I do work is redeemed by the gospel in me. That's the point. Bond servants display the lovely doctrine of God our Savior in the way that they relate to their masters. And we display the doctrine of God our Savior in the way that we relate to our employees, our employers. Instead of being difficult at work and argumentative, I seek now to be faithful and well-pleasing. Not pilfering, not, not more stealing. I don't steal from my employer. A Christian doesn't steal from his employer by wasting on-the-clock time with social media and things like that, not overbilling. The gospel has transformed us from that. Now, as Christians, we seek to be well-pleasing, and that is because we want to display the beautiful doctrine of God our Savior. I don't want the gospel to be reviled by the way that I work. I've never been one for abstract art. Maybe you like it, but it's not my cup of tea. My my thinking is that if I can make it myself, you know, with a blindfold on and just throwing ink against the wall, then maybe it's not art. 
I, maybe it is. Maybe it's your thing and you like abstract art. I, I'm not into art. I'm not an artist. And if I can make it myself, I don't think it's art. So we went to an art gallery on Friday and I just found myself walking by the abstract art pieces. Just my preference, I suppose. Whatever your preference is for art, I know this. God does not want us to make abstract the doctrine of God our Savior. The sunset painting ought to capture well the beauty of the actual sunset. So our lives must display the beauty of the gospel at work in us. I think that's the thrust of this passage. Verse 5 says that the word of God may not be reviled. And verse 10 says, showing all good faith so that in everything they might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We must rightly display the work of God in us. Or that work will be reviled. There's a way to adorn the gospel at work, at church, at home. And there's a way to so poorly display the work of God in us that no one can see it. It's abstract. It's not beautiful. It deserves reviling. In our podcast last week, Pastor Thomas mentioned the autobiography of Frederick Douglass, a freed black slave who wrote very compellingly about his experiences in 19th century as a slave. He was a slave and then he was free and he wrote really well about it. Along with all of the injustices that Douglas endured as a slave, there is something that he wrote that makes me very sad. Douglas wrote this. He said, of all the slaveholders with whom I've ever met, Christian slaveholders are the worst. I have ever found, I have ever found them to be the meanest and the basest and the most cruel and the most cowardly of all others. Douglas wrote this following his dashed hopes that slave owners who professed to be Christians would be kinder and more just in their treatment of slaves. But he experienced the opposite. He saw them as worse. And my takeaway from that is not that Christian, Christians are actually worse than unbelievers. I don't think they should have been slaveholders at all. But I don't think that, they, I don't think that Christians are actually worse than unbelievers my takeaway is that there is a way to so misrepresent and misdisplay the doctrine of God our Savior that the gospel is actually reviled, not adorned. It's made to look ugly. And what a travesty. It is the most beautiful reality in the universe. I don't want to be one who makes it look ugly. May it not be so among us. The gospel is so beautiful. The work of Christ on the cross and his empty tomb sets the sky on fire. And the display is brilliant and glorious and lovely and saving. Christians in every sphere of life, from every demographic and in every situation are called to accurately display that beauty. The beauty of Christ. We do that at home, we do that in the community of faith, the church, and we do that at work. If we are to teach what accords with sound doctrine and do that faithfully, that will be the result. We will see the gospel on display in homes, even in homes where only one spouse is a believer. And we will see it in the church where Christians from wildly diverse backgrounds and socioeconomic situations and races Love one another as a family. 
And we will see it out there in the highways and the byways in this world, on the construction site, in the classroom, in the hallways of the hospital, in the office. The gospel changes everything. Friend, has it changed you? Is it changing you? Does your life display the beauty of the cross and the loveliness of the empty tomb and the brilliance of the Spirit of God at work in you, transforming you into his likeness? Let's teach, friends, what accords with sound doctrine. Let's model it with joy. Let's display it. Let's pray. Father, I pray, we pray together that we would display in living color the wonder and the glory of Calvary and the hope of a changed life through Jesus. I pray for young women here in this room that they would, they would see the beauty of the gospel and live, long to live it out in their homes. I pray for young men in this room that they would do the same. I pray for all of us here, Lord, that we would live to proclaim the gospel by the way that we live and by the way that we preach. In Jesus' name, amen.